0: Welcome back. It is the much-anticipated episode two of Real Estate Roundtable. Is that right, Josh? I think so, yeah. That's the the most- Second yeah, time we've done second this. Second time. Yeah, we've yeah. had
1: all four of us, yeah.
0: Yeah, had our uh, panelists, expert panelists. Um, so for those who didn't watch it, we did it at like the beginning of the year, so uh, a lot has changed since then. Um, a little bit. Um, so what we like to do with this it's a little more serious than our usual conversations Uh, as people may know Josh and I uh, are realtors in our day jobs so a little more of the residential side of things Um, and then we like to bring in some friends from uh, the commercial side of business a little bit of a different perspective so today we have Andrew from uh, who was on the last real
2: estate roundtable Andrew want to say hi introduce yourself Sure. So I think last time I gave a a serious intro. So this time I'm going to give the intro they asked. (laughs) Uh, So I think I funded a gajillion dollars worth of loans Mm
0: -hmm. uh, this year. Nice. Um,
2: And uh, I I run 5,000 different uh, investment properties. Nice. That's my my level of expertise. Perfect.
0: Is off the charts. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, joining us today, uh, Brandon Amana. thank you for joining us, man. We appreciate you uh, jumping on with us. Uh, you want to say hello?
3: Uh, yeah, so I, I work at Avis and Young. My name is Brandon. I, uh, I'm a senior associate uh, in the multifamily investment sector. And uh, yeah, I've sold, ooh, I don't even know, actually, never really kept Sally, but uh, a few million dollars worth of, of apartment properties and uh, development sites and land sites in the Edmonton area and uh, Alberta region for the last four and a half years since I've been in the business. Nice, man.
0: Yeah. So uh, what's everyone's overarching feelings here? Is it, uh, is it, is it going to be the end of the world in the market? Is it going to be partying in the streets? What are we looking at uh, going forward here? I hope it's a ladder. That sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a better but, time. Uh,
3: yeah. 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 I think it's been, been more of a recovery period as a recent uh, I think when COVID hit, everything kind of just shut down, especially on my side of things. And um, I'd say my sector of real estate has been a bit busier than, than most of others, uh, excluding residential real estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the multifamily side has been pretty active, just given the the, the type of tenants that we have in our business and, and that it is more cyclical, but that being said, the turnover is just more of a regular part of our business. And so um, it's been looking up and I think a lot of the investment side of things, um, people are not looking as, as as closely at retail and office investments, industrial investments for obvious reasons. So um, they've, they've, they've switched, they've since switched to focusing more on multifamily and to diversify their portfolios. And that's, it's shown in the transactions, it's shown in our sales. So I think things are looking up. I think things are looking uh, a little bit better for sure. Pending a, a second lockdown here, I, I think we're, we're going to make it out. All right. Hopefully.
1: I like to hear that for us on the resi side, like we've been, active. It's been pretty active, man. Like people just keep coming in and buying houses and specifically on the, well, building and reno side of things too. It's from what I've heard, it's very difficult to get material right now.
3: For sure. Yeah. I heard lumber costs have gone up significantly. I used to work at trail building supplies. So like a lumber supplier back in the day. Nice. And, uh, I, I reckon things are a lot different though now. So I don't know what the costs of how much has gone up. I heard like anywhere from 10 to 20%. It's increased, and for certain types of lumber, and so, yeah, you can imagine. I guess margins are a lot tighter for guys out there. But uh, I guess on your guys' side, uh, the residential side, what kind of product is moving the most that you're you're noticing out there?
0: Go ahead, Josh.
1: Okay. Well, what I'm seeing is pretty much everything in that sub 450, 500. That's where things are just going. Mm -hmm. Um, Totally. I was out in Saint Albert doing a deal. This was a couple months back, but every single property we wanted to see was pending within like 2 days and that was really? your sub 450 out in st albert which is i mean for st albert that's a very low price bracket to get in but mm-hmm. yeah everything was just moving um generally i think things have slowed down just a little bit into you know november once the snow hits everything seems to kind of take a back seat for a lot of people but we're also seeing a lot of other transactions happen in, in the resi side too.
3: Wow. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I know. actually we, uh, well, a lot of our clients are actually a lot of merchant home builders in Edmonton, even land sales. Actually, I was, um, I was having a drink with somebody last week from Melcor and they sure. mentioned that literally all of their subdivisions are, are selling out. Like they can't keep product on the shelves. Whereas maybe a year prior, there were they had too much, way too much on the shelves. They had so much product on hand still and, I don't know if it's a factor of potential, I I guess, you know, maybe Andrew could speak to this a bit more, but um, uh, the low interest rates, some attractive debt options out there, I'm sure that's driving part of the market, but that's a bit strange. I don't know. Maybe there's a lot of people that didn't have the opportunity to purchase in the last few months during the lockdown. And now they're kind of coming back to the market in conjunction with who is already going to buy in this time. Anyways, maybe that's a bit of the the influx of, of purchases and, and trades that are happening, but yeah, it's a bit interesting.
1: Yeah. I'll let you touch on that, Andrew.
2: I think like, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. So interest rates do help uh, especially the fact that you can probably lock in like a 2.2, 2.3, 2. maybe even 2.1 for five years. They've got to go up at some point. So that's a pretty good deal. I think, and one of the articles kind of alluded to it, you're seeing a lot of people who probably put up buying, um, who lived either downtown or in condos or, and who rented, um, use this as an opportunity to buy. The one article specified that a lot of the changes they're seeing in, I think is the GTA area. Uh, the, so the rents for a, I think it was a three bedroom apartment decreased, but the average price for a three bedroom, like townhouse actually increased. So that is probably driving some of the people who, you know, we're paying, let's say, 15, dollars dollars $1,800 a month, $2,000 a month for a condo going, well, hey, like, I can get a house for less than that and a yard, which is mm-hmm. a way better option than my, you know, 1,100 square foot condo downtown. I don't have to be close to work anymore um, because the likelihood of my job going back to being downtown is either low or, you know, two or three days a week kind of thing. I think it's probably driving it. And then you have the combination of, you know, the lockdown hit March, April, uh, and you had some, I would say pent up demand too. Right. Mm-hmm. Where I don't like, I think they said they saw like no homes sold in March in Edmonton or something, mm-hmm. like something ridiculous like that. Right. So you, you have, you know, a combination of a lot of factors that drove just a ton of sales in the Edmonton area. Um, and I mean, like let, let's be real. If you, you know, are married or live with your girlfriend or boyfriend, um, and you both make decent money, like you're gonna easily be able to afford, you know, 350, 450, 500000 dollars home, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: This is just the time to buy. The the market is good and everybody is saying, You've got to buy now, you gotta buy now, you gotta buy now, right? So you got that psychological effect coming in and going, Oh, maybe I should buy, maybe I should buy.
3: I wonder how much of that is maybe driven by potentially a lot of the sellers. Maybe they're in a bit of financial distress and on the more, the, the merchant home builder side, you know, they were, they would, they'd be taking costs for a lot of these properties prior, but now that there's actually a market, um, I mean, they're, they're just well-priced and better priced than ever before. And so maybe there's a bit more motivation on the other end. that's really driving that bus as well. And it's really fed into a lot of the demand, for these products. Are yeah. I'd be,
1: Go ahead, Danger
2: Oh, I, I I would be really curious, um, because there is a lot of home builders, you know, mid you know, mid twenty nineteen, late twenty nineteen throughout the year that were really struggling. I'd be really curious to know at the end of the year if this has actually saved a lot of them from either serious financial trouble or insolvency. Um, just because they've been able to just sell product after product. And if that's you know, going to save a lot of the home builders in Alberta that were facing some pretty, some pretty dire financial positions.
1: Yeah. I was going to say that there's seemingly a push to suburban areas. Like there's a little bit of a movement from, you know, the downtown core to like you were saying, the merchant home builders are doing their subdivisions, you know, out in Chappelle or West of Edmonton, So there's that movement outside of the downtown core, which is interesting to me, which also, I I guess my question for you, Brandon, is what's driving the demand for multifam? Is it just because there's really the investment side of like for office space, it just doesn't look as attractive as multifamily does right now?
3: Yeah, I'd say there's a lot more, I guess, a bleaker future for a lot of the other asset classes out there. Like mm-hmm. when you're looking at industrial, you, you really got to look for unique businesses to take your spaces. I mean, I can't speak too much to it. I don't work in that side of things that often, but, or or at all for that matter. But I do know that, you know, unless you are looking to use that pro or use that space as a user owner or potentially throw in a unique type of tenant in there. And the same goes for office space as well. I mean, look at all these businesses The people are working from home, they've realized they don't need the office space anymore. You know, a great example is actually my father. He he works at Worley Parsons, and they've closed all their offices, and they took up a significant amount of space just north of uh, of White Mud there, and so they're all working from home now, and they've laid off a ton of people in conjunction with that, and that's one of many companies, and so when you're looking at that, I mean, it's it, it, there's not a whole lot of opportunities there for people to fill that same type of space, and so when you look at the projection of where that type of investment is going. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, people don't know, there's a lot of questions that fly around, whereas in multifamily, you have a bit more of a, I guess, a a needed, a needed space, right? People are always going to need to find a place to to live. Um, and it's a bit more of a, I guess, attractive asset class as of recent. I think when I, when I was getting in the business, it was just starting to take off and only over the last few years, we started seeing a lot of interest on the investment side from out east. So guys out of Toronto, even guys from BC. Uh, large REITs, institutional investors are now taking a look at Edmonton because they've been priced out of their own markets. The yields are not very good in Toronto and Vancouver. And so they're looking at Edmonton as a very viable option. And where else do you go outside of Vancouver and Toronto? Well, you're going to look at Calgary and Edmonton. So Alberta has been a place that's been receiving incredible demand in in multifamily over the last little bit here. And um, I think that's taken away a lot of the interest from these types of investors. Um, A lot of investors were previously very invested into obviously office and retail, uh, but they didn't really own much multifamily. So they're seeing as that as a bit of a a safe haven asset class, I guess, as you would say. Um, And as long as you run good properties, you have good management in it and you're well located, you know, a lot of things that need a lot of work and potentially, you know, major factors in your decision-making yeah, you're able to to, to receive good returns on, on these types of properties. And only recently as well, Edmonton has started developing these types of, of higher quality asset classes uh, for, for multifamily specifically. So we never had towers, rental towers five years ago, not even three years ago, maybe. Yeah. Right? We never had suburban rental products. They were all condos, right? So now we're seeing a lot of this type of product, higher quality, well-located product in Edmonton. These are just never purchasing options for, for, for these types of buyers, right? So Edmonton has really grown into a good rental market or at least you could say a stable rental market somewhat. And I think that's what's driven a lot of the demand. Cool. But that might be slowly changing now. I, I, I don't really know. I think a lot of the investors from out East now are kind of taking a back seat on Edmonton. We have noticed. So that's one of the major things that I've noticed this year, as opposed to previous years is that these institutions are just a little too risk averse. They have bought large yeah. positions in Edmonton in the last couple of years here, uh, even more than that last three, four years, they picked up probably a couple of them. I picked up maybe even close to a thousand units in Edmonton. And they've been invested here, I guess, in the last few years now, and it's been nothing but kind of fluctuating. And then now we have this. And so they're taking a bit of a backseat. Um, but also in conjunction with that, I mean, there's great opportunities out in Toronto and Vancouver in their own respective markets. And so when, you know, I think in the article that you sent away, Josh, and mentioned that uh, vacancy was increasing slightly, and in places like Toronto, rental rates were were, were declining. Right. And so, I mean, that leads to ultimately value, right? That's income. And so, when the income's not there, you get better values in your own market. You might as well play in your own backyard, right? Where you're closer to, right? As comparative to Edmonton, where there is a bit more risk in our market, given that we are heavily attached to the oil side of things, and, and obviously with COVID, right? It's a, a double whammy that we're we're seeing
2: here.
1: How much risk do you think that Edmonton has compared to Calgary, for example, um, because of the oil sector and all of that? I, obviously, we're a little yeah. bit more insulated, being a little bit more of a, we're not, like, we don't have the white-collar offices, right, totally, of totally, these yeah. these major companies.
3: Yeah, we have a lot more of the government sector, I guess, right, and, and that's what's kind of keeping some things afloat. But on the office side, I do know that they're experiencing incredible vacancy because that's where a lot of the headquarters were we're located at some point in time for a lot of these oil companies Mm -hmm. Um, on the multifamily side. I think Edmonton is, is potentially a little bit more insulated in that the population that we have here, like you mentioned, it it maybe is a bit more blue collar and these are the types of tenants that live in existing apartment buildings and fill more affordable units. And because of that, you know, we have that stable rental base, whereas maybe in Calgary you have a slightly higher income, you have highly, you know, slightly more white collar people, that, you know, maybe can afford a house, right? They, they don't have to go and rent, right? They'd rather have ownership because they can do it. Um, but um, I mean, there certainly is a bit more of attractiveness living in a place like Calgary, uh, for sure. But we have seen that the performance for rental properties here in Edmonton have been at least slightly better than what we see in Calgary. And, and I think that's kind of helped Edmonton. And we've seen ultimately more
2: investment on the multifamily side here as well. I can kind of speak to that. We, uh, we did a statistics project in my MBA on housing prices in Edmonton. We tried to correlate interest rate, uh, population increase, and price of oil. And I think one other one. And we found price of oil had no statistical um, correlation between the housing price in Edmonton. Really? It was an, almost entirely driven by population increases in interest rates. So I don't know if that would like how much of that would correlate over to like the multifamily, but that was sort of an interesting insight just in, in terms of Edmonton, how the oil price of oil had no bearing on uh price. I
1: also really think that today. real estate is that is a lagging market though too. Right. So
2: we you, go ahead. Sorry. We did, I think we did 20 or 25 years of data. Really? Yeah. Yeah, like we, because we thought about that, and we figured it was with twenty or twenty-five years of data, um, it we figured it'd be enough to either get around that, um, or at least like show it in some in something.
3: Hmm. That's really good to know, actually, because I know there was a there was a recent article I think it was like a couple weeks ago that came out that mentioned that there was going to be a push from the federal government to to drive more immigrants into into Canada, and they mentioned something to the tune of one point two million. And that will be 400,000 people at the tail end of each year. And if you think about the markets that these, these these types of residents would go to, I mean, you're looking at Toronto, Vancouver, very unaffordable markets, even on the rental side. I mean, you could live in Saskatoon, but I feel like Edmonton has a bit more opportunity or a place like that. Right. So, you know, I think Calgary and Edmonton are going to be the, the hotspots for a lot of this population growth over the next couple of years here. I think they said they're going to start in 2021 here. So, that's uh incredibly positive and i mean being on the multifamily and she's gonna try to stick it out until until that time because i know that occupancy will be good and that means that means sales so
0: mm-hmm. interesting good takes glad you guys are here um should we uh get into these articles here josh that you uh sent us yeah let's do that i actually you have them up in front of you
1: I do. I actually also wanted to add one from literally two hours ago, and that Mm -hmm. is that Airbnb has actually filed for their IPO, which is, let's start with that one because I think that that one's kind of the most surprising of any of the articles we're going to talk about, um, specifically because of the year that they've had due to the pandemic and everything. And why is it now the time? So let's talk about that one to begin with.
0: Well, yeah, do you have a thought that? on that? Because I mean, you know, I'm not. You're more the stock market guy.
1: Fair <laughs> enough. My my personal thought on it, just because how it relates to real estate, is that I wonder why now. Is it because they're trying to get people that are seeing obviously the long term of things and getting in now because of is the price going to be cheaper? I don't know. Is it, it's kind of an interesting uh, timing, to say the least. Um, you you said you had some thoughts on it, Andrew.
2: Yeah, like I wonder, I feel like it could go one of two ways. So the first way being you IPO now, you understand that you're probably not going to get a great price because whoever's going to lead it is going to have to go to Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and a bunch of these other institutional investors and pitch to them essentially a hospitality company or or a hotel company in effect uh, that is just going to take, losses for i mean what 12 months 18 months is probably best case scenario um but then you know once you climb out you're going to get a really nice stock increase right Mm -hmm. because you're going to be able to show really good changes in terms of profitability and and revenue growth and whatnot so that was the one the one side of uh, my thinking the other one was more on the you got to pick a date um Typically, you've got to have these dates well in advance, uh, so the sell side uh, investors can go to market, right? Mm-hmm. So this could just be a timing thing where they've, you know, signed an agreement with whoever uh, is, is going to essentially lead the the IPO as a, an underwriter, um, and they've decided to go out and do it, and they're like, sorry date's coming down. Uh, we've announced the IPO to get, you know, six to 12 months of uh, investors looking at it. And then we'll, we'll go from there. Right. That's, that was sort of the two ideas I had.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think the interesting thing too, is the last round table we did, we were talking about WeWork. I <laughs> believe. So it's <laughs> kind of an interesting timing that now we're talking about the other supposed unicorn. So, but um yeah, they, supposedly, at least over the last quarter, they they showed there's profit in the last quarter, but they've had to do deep, deep cuts. So it's interesting. We'll have to see how it goes. Any thoughts on that, though,
3: Brandon? Yeah, actually, well, I don't really follow the the equity markets too too much, but no, um, I'm I'm curious to see actually how it affects the rental industry, though. Um, I know in bigger markets like Toronto and Vancouver. Um, there, there could be a lot of opportunity there. If there's increased vacancy in a lot of these places, who's going to fill the holes? And so I know a lot of guys are looking towards short-term rentals. That could be a way in for them into the multifamily side. Um, and potentially they get a little bit you know, deeper into it and end up getting more on the short to, to midterm rental side, which is a huge thing, at least for seeing here in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. I do know, because a lot of guys are, well, it is harder to find renters. And a lot of people don't want to sign their typical year leases. Uh, they want to go for three to six month leases, and maybe that's a hotbed. It's a great, great area of the market for a place like Airbnb to attack. And you know, any market with excessive vacancy or more units, I think it's a good, good way to fill your your units and, and at least get some income out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, although there's, yeah, there's a lot of things that play into it, but I'm curious to see how that kind of coincides with with my business.
2: Hmm. Actually, I had one more thought just thinking about it. So you guys understand uh, how. Uh, venture capitalism works in terms of their return in their portfolios, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So essentially say, so Sequoia, um, it said has 16.4%. So they're going to say, okay, like we put a million dollars in 10 years ago, we need a $200 million exit. So this also could just be the, the lead VC firms going uh, Mm. guys, whether or not we're going to get our, our, valuation um, is inconsequential because right now I've got to return money to my investors and I need cash. Mm. That could be an interesting play too. And they could just say, look, we understand we're not going to get the valuation or the return we were hoping for, but we've got enough uh, that satisfies what we need to return year over year to our investors. uh, And we just got to cash out. Cause when, when did Sequoia buy into Airbnb? Like what? At least eleven, seven twelve years, maybe like yeah. ten, right? So they could be at the limit of that fund length uh, in terms of what they've got to return.
1: That's an interesting thought too, in that they're kind of, and we had talked about it with WeWork, in that you know you're almost uh, pushing them out of the nest, so to speak, so that you can get your, you know, your money back, right? And I mean, oh, we're only going to make two hundred x instead of. 400x or whatever but yeah i just think it's interesting it's timing to say the least that or they have so much faith in this uh vaccine that's supposed to come out that maybe six months down the road from now it's a completely different world but okay uh so that was the first article we wanted to talk about the second article was um the average canadian house price continues to defy expectations were up 17% in the last year. So maybe Tom and I can speak a little bit more to that one, but September was the busiest month for home sales ever, which is insane to think about. So I'll let you start that one, Tommy.
0: Sure. I mean, uh, yeah, it's kind of a weird phenomenon and it's definitely, I would say, um, semi-artificial in that it's very, it was a lot of pent up demand, but I also think it would be um, kind of, we touched on it earlier where it's sort of a, a skewing towards um, more suburban detached single family sort of thing. So, cause I know in Edmonton specifically, like probably the best and healthiest market is basically detached single family under 400 K right. Right. Which generally it is, but it was exceptionally hopping this year versus like you when you break it down to like condos and townhomes, it was kinda meh, right? So perhaps the again the data maybe here is skewing upwards because not so much that prices are increasing, but the uh price of property that transacted more was higher, if that makes sense.
1: Okay, gotcha.
0: Yeah, it's sell, you know what I mean? Like selling. 10 200k condos or 10 400k condos like it skews the price either way. Absolutely. So that's that's kind of my tough. take on this. Um because I can tell you anecdotally like I have listings that I, you know, relisted this year that are listed cheaper than last year. So it's kind of factually inaccurate to say prices increased 15% in Alberta or whatever. It's 8.5% in Alberta here, but yeah. I always that's my two cents on it at least.
1: I always laugh at the the national averages
0: because you have again They make yeah. What no does it say here? Six hundred and nine thousand?
1: Yeah, six hundred and four thousand in is the average home price in Canada. Not in Alberta, I can tell you that. Yeah. All <laughs> <yeah, laughs>
3: ballooned by the the two sides of our country for sure. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. It's uh, I I don't know. Go ahead. Yeah, Sorry.
3: I was curious to find out. Yeah. I was curious to see, I guess. Um, Cause I know I guess uh, in the last year or so we've been kind of mentioning this to our clients and the reason maybe one of the reasons why the multifamily side was so active as a reason is we did notice that the mortgage rules that were put in place, I guess in 2018, were they, um, they yeah. did make a bit of an impact on purchasing power. So people mm-hmm. maybe weren't purchasing those homes back way back when, mm-hmm. I guess in the last couple of years, um, that in combination with the lower interest rates, with maybe a slight decline in housing prices, maybe in that range, has has created a bit of demand for for home sales. Uh, mm-hmm. But we have noticed actually, I mean, like we, we alluded to this throughout the podcast here in that um, a, a lot more people are, are looking to go to the suburbs and we're noticing that huge on the townhome rental side. So that's mm-hmm. not something that's normally okay. ever been on the rental side of things. It's mainly always been fee simple sales. Um, but uh, there's a couple owners out there, builders that have built town home projects. They're fully leased out and they fully lease out oh. in six to eight months. Right. Okay. So there's no problem filling these units. Um and previously maybe these were something in that range of what, two fifty, three 50 to three fifty a door. Yep. Yep. Um these things are renting out great. And so it is I believe it maybe is a lifestyle choice, people with families, they don't want to go out and rent a condo or a two bedroom apartment. They want to go and live in a the town home. They wanna live in the suburbs, they wanna have that life and now that they, they don't need to be
0: downtown, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, interesting. That's in Edmonton that they're doing that as well? Edmonton, yeah. yeah. Edmonton, okay. yeah.
3: yeah ma- all in Edmonton. Um, we've noticed a couple projects, mainly on the southeast.
0: So maybe oh, okay. that's a more yep, of a,
3: yep, yep. an area for it, like Summerside, you're talking, Orchards, mm-hmm. Walker, Aurora, yeah. those areas. Um, but yeah, I mean, rental product for townhomes or, I guess, more bedroom units at least.
0: Yeah, it's just off a shelf. little more space, right? So, exactly. probably not a huge incremental cost increase. Exactly. exactly you know, yeah. so
1: when you really intriguing. think about it, you know, a two bedroom condo, city centers, you know, I don't know, I'm paying seventeen, eight hundred, eighteen hundred bucks a month. What are you paying for a, a townhouse out there where you get, you know, like your full three bedrooms? Um, You know, you're getting probably. 12 or 12 garage exactly 1300 yeah, square yeah, feet anywhere it is. yeah mm-hmm. your rental is going to be you know comparable so and that's, i mean if you have yeah, a family like that,
2: well yeah that's like that's what i alluded to earlier right like your per dollar amount that you're getting is just is, is way better mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. oh yeah and i can tell you anecdotally like i really love the condo location we have here but Now that I've been stuck inside a little more this year, I'm like, oh man, it would be nice to have, you know, yard, basement, more, some few, a few more bedrooms. Right. So, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe the, uh, yeah, when uh, the trade-off of walkability for personal space, if we're going to be more like home-based creatures living and working, you know, kind of going forward. Right. I
1: wonder if we're going to see a lot more acre sales or something then too.
0: (laughs) Plausibly. I don't know. Acreages wise- were pretty busy this summer, but it also die Like that's a submarket that kind of dies really hard as soon as the snow flies, for
2: whatever reason. Mm-hmm. That might be Maybe. dependent on how close they are to the city and how good the uh, internet is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. i was right. going
3: to say is see, when you, in the wintertime you got to see how much snow you have to shovel.
2: <laughs> Massive <laughs> yeah, driveways.
3: Exactly. So screw exactly. that.
2: That's, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> <That's my laughs> I read the article and I was kind of annoyed because yeah, like when you guys brought up that like the average housing price is, you know, six hundred and seven, six hundred and nine thousand in Canada. Um, I mean, cool. Like all it takes is one twenty million dollar sale in Vancouver or Toronto and that'll jump it up like five or six percent. That's why mm-hmm. some of these stats are just so dumb. I'd much prefer it if they came out and they said, you know, median housing prices in Alberta were median housing prices in BC were you kind of get like an idea where you don't get like this massive outlier that just balloons everything.
1: I'm glad True, that's good Statistics 101.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I didn't even think of that, you know, cause we've had that in Edmonton before where you'll have like, even in past years where, you know, like 2016, 17 where the market was really tanking, but then there would be like one $3 million sale in the summer and it would skew the stats for that month so yeah when you have vancouver toronto you have the potential of those eight nine ten million dollar properties changing hands every once in a while mm-hmm. and that would probably be a significant blip on the radar too so yeah as usual when it comes to housing stat articles on national housing stats on national news websites it paints it with kind of too broad of strokes in my opinion uh, in a lot of ways and maybe doesn't give a good picture i mean it was definitely a busy market this year but I think it was just kind of, cause we essentially forced people to do their home shopping in half the time Yeah, valid. of the market being available. If that makes any kind of sense, you know?
1: Yeah. Super valid point. I think that obviously too, like real estate is so localized that this sort of statistic is, is it's a moot point, frankly, but mm, yeah. Do uh, you guys want to move on to the next one?
0: Yeah. What's the next one you have up there, Josh?
1: The next one I have is the one about the office space vacancy. Uh, So Edmonton Mm. office space vacancy remains flat, but healthy, says CBRE report.
0: I was Uh, quite surprised to hear this just as a residential side guy where I'm surprised it's not like way because it's been what, like 18 to 20% for a couple of years, hasn't it? If I'm not wrong, right? Like, I don't know. I thought it would be much, much higher, but I don't know. Maybe you guys can commercial guys can attest to why this hasn't changed significantly or um, yeah. Like, uh, is there a lot of lag time where maybe these companies are slow to give up their spaces, downsize, whatever, like what's, this is actually probably the most surprising article for today for me, honestly. Mm
3: -hmm. I think part of it, I don't know how it's calculated per se, but um, I think a lot of it is some of these buildings are being taken off the office uh, market completely. And so they're being converted. Oh. There's at least a couple properties that have been converted into multifamily that could be part of the reason why. True, so true. out of the yeah, universe yeah. of vacancy, uh, that does end up getting smaller. Um, but um, uh, it's actually okay. surprising. There was, there was, I know there's at least three projects that are going on right now, actually maybe even four projects that are going on that, has, that are office conversions. Uh, so they're converting them into multifamily and surprising actually, they're quite nice.
2: Mm-hmm. The biggest
3: restriction for a lot of these buildings is parking. Uh, not as many of these buildings are outfitted for a residential ratio in parking. And so we do see that become an issue. But um, I think that's partly one of the reasons I know Embers Tower, they were thinking of doing hotel there right on, I guess it's 104th Street and Jasper Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe they're actually going to go rental there as well. Um, so there's going to be an influx of rental property from this office component. But yeah, interesting. Uh, I think that's a major reason why.
0: Okay. Yeah. Now, I can picture a few of them in my head now that you say it. I wouldn't have even thought of that.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Interesting. Hmm.
1: I think, too, that when we look at office space, there's going to have to be some creativity. Um, And that's one way to fill Mm -hmm. a hole in the market is to change it over to residential. So,
0: yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if I can add on what Josh said, I think we'll see some... This is just kind of more random speculation i think we'll see some interesting stuff with uh in the future coming years maybe like more co-working spaces um because they're kind of a very niche product in edmonton and a touch expensive right now but perhaps if there's more work from home revolution plus a whole bunch of vacant office space particularly suburban we might see people doing creative stuff maybe more like like an airbnb of commercial to do like pop-up shops or something if everyone's starting their little home-based business, something like that. Hmm. I don't know, but uh, it'll be a really interesting one to see. Um, One thing that I've heard that's kind of a problem nationally or whatever is, uh, and you guys would know more than me about this, but uh, the investors who own like industrial and uh, commercial office space, like because the cap rates are so low there, like what's going to happen long-term if they're all totally vacant, like what we see mass abandoned warehouse districts and stuff, or what what do you guys think there
3: all to Amazon? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, seriously. (laughs) That might be a serious option, but uh, I think you're just going to have to diversify and find unique tenants for these spaces and, Mm -hmm. or, you know, worst case scenario, maybe you're demolishing the property and you're selling it for land value and looking at a different use for that property. I think there's going to be environmental issues with that though, but um, yeah, I think you're just going to have to diversify. So you see a lot of interesting tenants out there for industrial spaces. You know, I've seen everything from, I think it was a, a bow and arrow <laughs> type of uh, thing. It's like a, a, where you have bow and arrows and you shoot people essentially, like really w- strange uses like that. But, you know, the terms are, are much shorter. They're a year to three years, mm-hmm. um, but it's a, a way to fill the property and
0: mm-hmm. extract
3: okay. some value out of it.
0: Andrew, and I also I found it I... very
3: interesting on the office side, there was a massive transaction that recently happened I think oh, yeah. it was to the tune of $100 million, um, a hundred million dollars buyer from out West from Vancouver. They bought a Canadian Western bank building. Oh, I and, heard about that actually. Yeah. They recently closed on that. So a bit surprising too, actually a little bit more positivity for the office market, I guess you could say in that there are investors looking out there for properties like that, that are maybe not substantially leased out, but at least mostly leased out. Um, yeah it's it was a bit surprising to see a transaction that large in Edmonton at this time for sure.
0: Hmm. Well I, I feel mean, like there were a few big sales in, in the past year were they not. Yeah, not specifically office but just big buildings being sold outright. Oh, yeah, that's fair.
3: definitely on the on the multifamily side there is a ton of portfolios that sold. I know there's three concrete high rises. I think it was if you look at multifamily volume this year, it literally made up about 50 to 60% of the volume. I think it was to the tune of 300 million, these three oh, buildings, okay. uh, All downtown. I think it was the Devonshire portfolio is what they call it. But there's a couple other sales like that, that some of it actually tailed on from last year, but okay, a lot gotcha. of large sales, like the Mayfair building on 109th Street in Jasper that it sold. A uh, few other projects in the downtown core as well. And then the Oliver and in the uh, Strathcona University areas.
2: yeah like I think going back to the super empty buildings have been you know targeted towards more of the rental or moving towards more of the rental. so I think that's bang on um part of it could just be that it takes a while to get out of your lease, right like if you signed a, a four you know floor. Lease with a, a company downtown. I mean, who are you going to sublease it to? Right, right. Like that's a good point. There's, there's really not a lot of options. Uh, I think properties are really attractive, right? Like the Canadian Western Bank one. If you've got cash and you can get a good deal, go, go find it. Like we saw oil field companies in. I think it was 2016, 2017 when the crash happened. If they had cash, they were buying assets because it was a great time to buy assets, right? So again, it comes back, if you're an investor, you've got the cash, go find a good building. Yeah, I think
3: for properties like that, they, I think they had a good tenant base in there as well. Right? Quite. I, I don't believe it was full of oil companies or anything like that. But they had a law office in there, maybe even a couple. Uh, Canadian Western Bank, I think, takes up a good portion of the floors there as well. Mm-hmm. So you have good stable tenants in that property, which, you know, in terms of cash flow, and they probably have very long leases in that property as well. And so you're thinking of, you know, good long term money. Makes sense that way, but I guess not every building's like that.
0: It's true. Yeah, gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, uh, when's next yeah, on the list well- here, Josh?
1: Let's do the uh, the listing skyrocket while leases are up and yeah. rents are down. Making sense of the complex COVID rental market. Um, this is an interesting one because it was from October 28th. So this is kind of like listings are skyrocketing as we're going into winter. So for me, that was kind of like a, a duh. But I mean, what's your guys' take on it?
3: Yeah. And that was, uh, I guess that was mainly, was that across Canada? Sir, I'm
2: just trying to recall the article there.
1: Yeah. It's the, well, it's the Edmonton Journal article. So it's a little bit more oh, okay. focused on Edmonton, but there's it's there's Toronto and stuff in it too.
2: So It touches
3: on it. Yeah. 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 I think when it comes to the rental rates and whatnot, I think a large part of that, I guess in any market right now, given that rental is a bit more of an attractive asset class, is that there's been a lot of supply added to the market. So
1: mm-hmm. I think
3: that takes up a big portion of what that vacancy is and Obviously when you have more buildings in in any area, there's gonna be more competition. That's gonna drive rental rates down, it's gonna be better for the tenant. Uh, But I think that's at least what's happened here in Edmonton. Um, I think we had like 1,780 units added to our market at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, in the last couple of years. And I mean, that takes time to absorb. So it was surprising when CMHC actually came out last year with a vacancy rate that was lower than a year prior, yet we added almost 2,000 units. I think it was just a matter of absorption. Um, but it showed that we were a pretty resilient market. But now that there's even more added to the market and things aren't as as green and nice in today's market, I think that's, that's what we're experiencing a little bit. Hmm.
2: Hmm. I'm really curious to see, because the article talks about how the shift from short-term rentals to long-term rentals uh, has sort of partially been... Uh, done because of decreasing tourism right so i don't think edmonton is going to see a big change of this but i'd be curious to see how in toronto vancouver montreal cities that get way more tourism um, if they continue this trend from short-term rentals to long-term rentals are you going to see you know hotel rates or airbnb rates go up uh, once tourism comes back because of demand issues are you going to see just everybody put their house up on airbnb because they know they can make like a month's rent in a weekend on it kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Good take. I think that, um, and I mean, also it mentions that there's like no calls for rental housing to be built because there's such a glut. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, I'm seeing that in Edmonton even like I'm trying to, there's a unit that I'm trying to rent out for a, a client and like, there's just so much competition in the price bracket that it's just, it's insane. Like the inquiries I'd be getting six months ago on a unit were in the dozens per day. And now it's like three over the last week. <laughs> so it's, it's an interesting place to be um, when there's so much competition. And I mean, people are just trying to, I think people are obviously, if you have a some sort of portfolio, you're trying to make some cash from it at this point. Um, mm-hmm. You don't want those units sitting vacant. So
3: I think it all kind of goes full circle there. Like a lot of these older properties, I mean, if you think about the type of owners, maybe it's been passed down, they've owned it. They almost have no debt on these properties, these old existing buildings. Mm -hmm. So they've never done anything to their units. They never renovated it. They've never done any major improvements. And now you have a brand new purpose-built rental building beside you, plus two more down the road, right? Mm -hmm. And then five more planned in the next two years, well, I mean, you're going to have rental competition, so you're lagging behind, right? And so I, I do believe that there's a fight to quality right now. People don't want to live in that old wood frame building when for not too much more, you can either get into a nicer renovated unit or a brand new unit, right? And so you're going to be faced with that external competition, I think, a lot more. And, and that's why, why the reason you know we're seeing a bit of a price drop in the overall asset class is that you know, we've seen a, maybe about a 5 to 10% drop in pricing for multifamily over the last year here. And yeah, it's because you know that income and that revenue stream is not nearly as, as fruitful as it was previously, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the hardest things that we have to do to, to communicate to these people that you know your your, your units are maybe just not going to get as much rent as they used to, and that's why your building's priced this way. But yeah,
2: I'd also be curious to see because you know prior to the pandemic, the whole thing was you live close to where you work, right? I mean that's what drove downtown rents uh, and prop. Properties for the most part, right? And you live downtown, you work downtown. So I'm really curious to see, as we see everybody get, we'll say, out of downtown, what that changes in terms of what are people getting uh, in, you know, rental units and, and whatnot, especially on, yeah, like you're expanding south side uh, kind of uh, areas and markets, right? And how that's going to really affect uh, not only housing prices, but the rental, the rental market, right? Like if, if I'm a young family uh, and I can pay, you know, the same price as I pay for a two bedroom condo downtown um, in Summerside or Ellerslie or Chappelle or Allard, get a really nice house, yard. I don't have to go to work. Right. I mean, I feel like we all know the answer to that.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we already started to experience that. We talked to a lot of leasing guys out there. Um, for new purpose of rental buildings. And it's been slow. It's been incredibly slow. They're just not getting the rental rates. They haven't been able to fill their properties. I think a great example would be McLaren. I, I know that they're in McLaren on 124th Street. I know they're still struggling to lease up units. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked to the leasing person who's great at what she does, uh, but she's doing the same thing for the Augustana Tower uh, in that government district there. And that oh, yeah. again is, is having some struggles leasing up as well. Um, yeah, it's just that population loss in the, in the downtown core. I think it's the main driver
1: of that. Huh. Do you think? Absolutely. Do you think it might also might also be product for those buildings too? Because obviously, I've looked at them. The, the The units are shoe boxes. You know, like they're they're mm-hmm. tiny units. Um, do you think that that might play into it a little bit too?
3: Absolutely, I think that there is a bit of a change in. I guess in the way people want to live um, I mean a, a lot of these developers are chasing, you know, one major thing, which is a price per square foot. Right. Right. So they want to get close to that three, you know, $300 a square foot or three, sorry, three dollars a square foot. And it's um, yeah, it's tougher for these guys out there um, to, to try to reach those, those numbers. Right. They're all a numbers game in there and when they plan these projects. And so I think that's a large part of what they're chasing, but it's a bit of a lifestyle too. I, you know, the, the Hendrix tower leased up very well at initial release and they had tiny units, right? And they're four yeah. or 500 square feet for the smallest one bedroom. Units. Which, which so, tower was
0: that? Sorry. Hendri- Hendrix. The Hendrix
3: tower. Oh, Hendrix.
0: Oh yeah. 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 Gotcha.
3: And so I know that, you know, there is demand for, for that type of product out there. Um, and you're able to obviously increase the density when you have units that small as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, maybe that's changing right now. Uh, it certainly is that we're seeing for the products that are just completing at this time.
1: And they also focused on amenities too in those buildings, which are probably just not being used at this point. Yeah, you have to keep them closed or whatever. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, and we're noticing that too is um, people are just going based on affordability. So if you have a basic product versus something with all the bells and whistles, you know, it's going to be harder to lease up that, that you know the, the bells and whistles project for sure. People want to chase value, right? People want something basic, a place to live, and I don't need a, a rooftop patio with a cafe and free bagels. Right, I can make do with a, a gym or not even the gym, right? Maybe they just they don't need anything. They want bare bones, and mm-hmm. if that helps them save on their monthly r- rent, they'll, they'll they'll make that choice.
0: Gotcha. It seems to be, and we'll come back to this at the end. But there's kind of an overarching theme of this work from home revolution that has kind of been thrust upon us, and we're like halfway through it enough that we can see some impacts and it appears it will continue to make future ones. So it'll be interesting to kind of come back to this conversation, you know, in like six, eight months or something like that. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and and you can also kind of see how it uh, across sectors, if you will, between houses, renting apartments, commercial, like it, it's affecting everywhere. Right.
2: Yeah. I mm-hmm. think like, I think you're going to see a massive bell curve, right. Cause I've got friends, who the moment that it becomes we'll call it safe or, or good enough to go back in the office, like their companies have to go back in the office, right? Like I get right. a buddy who works for a video game developer. They have to go back in the office when this is done, right? Like the amount of pro- productivity and other issues that they've encountered has just cratered them. Right. Hmm. So I think you're going to see like everyone is now working from home that can, right. But as you know, assuming the vaccines are good, they get rolled out, and we start seeing what we we'll call it a, a return to normalcy. Uh, I think we are going to see sort of a rebound effect in some respects, uh, hmm. especially for for companies that either sort of have to be in the office or it, in terms of what they do, it just makes more sense.
0: Right. Yeah, there may be a, well, cause some, but the, cause there are, yeah. So something like you just described, I know law offices are another one where they push really hard to be back in person as soon as possible. Um, where, uh, but then there's a lot of reports out there of companies realizing, you know, 30% of their workforce can work from home or maybe they don't even need them. Right. So, well, I think there'll be a very clear split of like return to the core, if you will, versus kind of staying more suburbia work from home, right?
1: Yeah, there's a there's obviously the question of productivity
0: and I seem to hear very conflicting sides. reports on that. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, most definitely. So
2: I think yeah, like I think a lot of it just has to do with the roles in the um the industry and the business, right? Like I can do my role entirely at home. Um, nothing has changed still very effective, right? I have colleagues who work in other areas of the bank, not so much the same story, right? Um, a lot of the sales staff, uh, commercial lenders, those uh, folks, you know, because they've essentially been shuttered at home uh, are having some issues with it just because that's the nature of the job, right? The nature of the job is you going out you meeting clients uh, and sort of being in, in areas, right? I'm, like I'm sure you can speak to that, Brandon, right? Like there's mm-hmm. there's certain things that just you, you sort of need to be in an office. Now, whether or not that office is downtown or that's on the south side because it's cheaper or, or you know, some other place, that's a really good question. Um, but yeah, I think like you're going to see, we like we've all kind of come down this, you know, massive curve and then we're going to go back up a bit, I think.
3: Yeah, no, I can agree with that. Yeah. Like, I mean, at least I can speak for myself, a guy like myself, I definitely need to be in the office to be productive, but I think it goes far beyond that. We have a lot of services there. We have, you know, places for collaboration and, and working with other people that you wouldn't normally get if you work from home. So I think it's important for a lot of business, especially, you know, at least in, in the real estate side. Um, it's the reason why I've been in the office, I guess, prior to, to this week, almost every day, but um, yeah, you need that face-to-face, you know, client. Find focus, and that's how we get a lot of our our communication through and our our deals done.
0: Yeah,
1: I don't think that's going away anytime soon, so it'll be interesting to see. Um, Let's hit on the last article, I guess, here then.
0: Uh, Let's finish it up.
1: Yeah, because this one is talking about the relief programs and essentially how they're starting to wind down and how there's forecasting of more bankruptcies to hap- happen. So, I mean, I think in the first wave, we did see a lot of these, um, small businesses, restaurants shuttering their doors, and not coming back, but maybe we haven't seen all of it just yet. I also, one thing I'll touch on too, is that the interesting thing is that in Alberta, we seem to be the wild west of being able to still, go out and do all these things. Whereas a lot of these other provinces right now, there are just nobody, nobody's leaving their houses right now. So it's kind of, um, we're kind of almost in our own bubble when it, when it comes to this too.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, this is, and this may be a dumb question. When they measure household debt, do they include your mortgage in
2: that? I usually assume they do unless yeah. the article tells me specifically they don't. Yeah. Cause I know um, they say,
0: Oh, Canada's household debt is 181% of their disposable income. Oh, but maybe if it's disposable, I'm just thinking where it's like, well, yeah, no shit. Your debt might be high depending on like all data, it depend- You can make whatever ratio you want. Right. So mm-hmm. like a 300 K mortgage will be relatively high compared to anyone's monthly income. Right. So, um, Anyways, but no, this is interesting because it kind of goes back to the lag time discussion of uh, what will happen long-term because I have clients asking me, they're like, oh, have there been like just crazy foreclosures? And I'm like, well, no, not really because A, first of all, the mortgage uh, deferrals. So, you know, how long did those go on for like four months, five months, right? Like,
2: uh, No, it was longer. Yeah, it was more like six or something, right? Like I think you, it's, you could get up to six months.
0: Okay. Yeah. Cause that would be something where you wouldn't see the foreclosures that are reactive to that until like several months after they had to start paying again, right? Um, and it sounds like that's kind of the same story here. At least this article is talking about, you know, how CERB and stuff, how it's rolling down. I mean, it's uh it's kinda of interesting. I think because things sort of spiked Uh, at the start for sort of these insolvencies and stuff probably just because those were the people most vulnerable or most like very literally paycheck to paycheck right Mm -hmm. and then that's why they got wiped out so quick and now it's kind of the people who were able to you know keep it together so i don't know i guess we'll see what what ends up happening here and how this affects things long term right Anyone having anything?
1: Yeah, I was going to ask Brandon. Are you seeing any sort of foreclosure or stuff on the commercial side when it comes to you know people just not being able to hold on to some of these buildings? Or I don't. Yeah, I not don't... so
3: much actually. Yeah, I mean it's not really been a prevalent issue unless you're just a god awful owner that doesn't know how to manage or run your property. It's 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 incredibly tough to run yourself into the ground. Mm-hmm. I think in, you know, despite the market, um, especially on the multifamily side, is as, as long as you are able to fill your building with with decent tenants, you're gonna make out okay. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's it's you know, great and, and, and awesome for everybody. It's certainly on a case by case basis, mm-hmm. very situational. Um, but not a lot of foreclosures or anything unless there's something on the back end or something much deeper on that owner. Maybe their other business is going under and you know, they're they're attached to this asset potentially. Um, but, uh, no, not, not really much we're seeing there.
1: Hmm.
3: And again, maybe that's propped up by, you know, potential payments that a lot of the tenants are getting. So I know there's obviously SERV still, well, I guess that, that ended, uh, you know, I guess earlier this month potentially, but, um, I know that, you know, they're, they're still getting revenue from, from these guys. And so that's what we're noticing that a lot of owners in at least B and A class areas of town, they haven't really come down on their values actually at all. Um, and that's to be the biggest disconnect. They're, they're essentially unsellable because they haven't seen anything different in their revenue uh, just yet. So maybe that changes in the next six months. But yeah, if you're on the multifamily side, unless you have a significantly vacant building, which is hard to come by, uh, you're not seeing a lot of guys in, in that much hot water.
1: Yeah, I didn't really think so, to be honest. Yeah. Like... And, and
3: there, were, there were some mortgage referrals as well. I know through CMHC. Uh, there was some deferrals that people wouldn't have to necessarily pay. I, th- I think the guys that we're seeing the most hit from, actually, if anything, is is in your secondary and tertiary markets. So if you guys you, ha- you have um, product in places that are very cyclical in nature, you mm-hmm. know, I have a couple buildings that I sold in Hinton, for example, and a large part of their industry it comes from lumber, but but also oil. Um, and and the guys go in there for eight six to eight month stints, and that's the basis of your rental pool. And well, when those guys are not there. Yeah, you're going to have a very, very vacant building, uh, incredibly vacant building. I mean, 50% would be awesome all right, if it gives you a bit of a, a frame of reference. And so, I mean, making your payment scenarios like that, I, I think, are yeah, you're going to have a tough time and potentially you might have to go into, into some sort of foreclosure or, or, uh, or insolvency situation.
1: Hmm. What are you seeing on the banking side of things, Andrew?
2: Um, I haven't heard a lot. The thing that annoys me about these articles is they say uh, there's an increase of almost 19%. I don't really care about the increase. I don't really care about how many people are. I want to picture the overall market, which is one of the things that always annoys me with these. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, like, I haven't heard a lot. I think the general assumption a lot of people are assuming will play out is that you'll have uh, CERB started to end, I believe it was the end of September, So we're about a month and a half out of CERB. uh, And I would assume that you'd take a three month deferral after that, if you still had problems. So a lot of people are assuming early next year is when you're going to start to see a lot of the foreclosures, people just simply run out of cash or options. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did send, I didn't send it to YouTube, but I sent Josh and Phil an article that stated Canada was the most generous out of all the developed Western nations in terms of their COVID relief and that I household it. incomes actually rose over this year. Wow. Um, so the, the federal government has kind of put themselves in this pickle of, they've been too generous. How do you take people off and they don't have any more options, right? So if you, th- you know, we go back to econ 101 your two options from a, a government perspective on spearing the economy is interest rates uh, and then fiscal policy, right? So the problem being is they pumped a ton of money into the market as well as cut interest rates. Mm-hmm. So they have no more, no, no other option. They can't cut interest rates further because there's no room to cut, right? Like one w- percent, really to two percent. Like, you're you not gonna make a difference there. Uh, and they spent $350 billion. So now, how do they get thems- themselves out of this mess? Well, they gotta spend more money because they have no other options. Hmm.
1: UBI coming down the line.
2: Yeah, until we, they go broke, yeah. right? Like, it's this was always gonna be the big problem that everybody started talking about back in april and may was once this program ends what are you guys going to do it's not like like it's not like anything changed if you still had a mortgage it's not like your mortgage got paid down or um you, like parts of it got forgiven it was just it was just a pause right so all the developed nations who went through this are having the same problem going well the economy's still not where we think it should have been um People still can't pay their mortgages. The mortgage is still there. What do we do? Hmm.
1: I I have one yeah. buddy who's like the he was thinking the sky is gonna fall in like September or whatever, exactly right after these programs ended. So, I guess it's gonna be interesting to see a month or two down the line that maybe the next time we do this, <laughs> things will be way different again.
0: Yeah. So maybe, maybe internet and zoom won't be a thing and it'll all come crashing down. But, um, I I think, uh, I do think the, uh, and this is, um, I want to make sure I articulate this properly. I do think though, the people most susceptible, um, to being hit hard by the end of CERB are more on like a, those who are like laid off or, um, perhaps more of like, let's call it like an economically marginalized group sort of thing. It's not Are like they people... homeowners
1: in the first place.
0: Well, that's exactly it. Right. Um, and going back to some of the rent stuff and whatever on these articles, it was saying um, no. Right. But uh, basically with, um, yeah, where, where I'm kind of going with this, uh, it's, you know, all the people buying homes this summer and fall weren't using CERB to buy homes. Right, those are where people economically stable enough to do it. Mm-hmm. So uh, we may have a, yeah, it's kind of the marginal homeowners. Perhaps we'll see some people who are like maybe more heavily tied to oil and gas. I don't know how bad that is, but that in Serb, it's it's kind of in my opinion going to be a segment of a market, which is unfortunate. And it, the overarching theme that's been an issue through this pandemic is like uh, the the. Uh, widening of the wealth gap, if you will, just because it's probably a group who's not a high percentage of homeowners uh, who have this higher uh, debt and are more dependent on these programs and stuff, right? So Hmm. I uh, I actually am curious to see what happens come tax season next year, too, where there's a whole bunch of people who it's going to be like, you have to give back a whole bunch of that CERB and stuff, too, and the financial strain that may cause for individuals.
1: Yeah, you didn't qualify for it or whatever,
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah i don't know i mean canada was, did a good job of it but it's also going real long term with it like they they objectively just printed money right so we're going to be playing these inflationary costs for the rest of our young lives we're all about the same age right like well into our adult lives we'll still see the rolling repercussions of covid in my opinion hmm. yeah well, uh, I think that was a pretty interesting conversation today. Um, I'm glad you two are here. You guys have some better in-depth in insights into the financial side of things than us uh, lowly residential <laughs> filters. But um, So let's try and come back to this in maybe six months or so. Uh, but does anyone, should we all end up with uh, predictions for the next first half of next year kind of thing? Let's do that. That's a good idea. Anyone want to take it away? Dibs out.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I know I couldn't just echo my statement from the beginning. Um, I I think things on, at least on my end end of the spectrum, on the multifamily side, it seems like it's heading in the right direction. Um, I think once, uh, you know, I guess, you know, a large part of my industry is being driven by, by low interest rates right now. And it's a great investment environment due to the depressed values out there. And, some buildings struggling, and you know, obviously there are still buyers out there, and I think that that number only increases going forward. And um, yeah, I think uh, I, I'm hoping that we're out in the clear out of this thing, this whole situation sooner than later. And I think once we do, that investor confidence comes back, and obviously people are, people are, you know, eventually going to be coming back to school. And with this immigration uh, news that we had here recently, I think there's there's bright future for for multifamily and 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 the business.
1: Cool. Any thoughts on office space?
3: (laughs) More conversions, maybe. (laughs) Okay. Hmm.
1: Fair enough.
2: Andrew? I think you guys are going to have another record year next year. Hmm. Because if you think about it, the economy is going to pick up next year um, for a lot of reasons. Interest rates are still going to be super low, right? Regardless of of how fast that economy picks up, like you, you really don't only raise it I mean, 25 basis points uh, a year, right? So I think you guys are going to have another record summer in residential uh, as people get a little more confident in terms of uh, consumer confidence and buying a little more stable in terms of their income. Uh, And they, once again, see record low interest rates and they're like, yep, let's go buy, let's go buy kind of thing. I think Brandon's bang on. I think you're going to see some smart investors make some really good, uh, buys and then figure out what they want to do with them. Uh, especially in these non like worldly markets. So like outside of Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, uh, especially if they can get some of the, the immigration going, the, I mean, the, the big thing with demographics is Canada still has a super low birth rate. So like last year, uh without immigration. I think they they said it was something stupidly low, like seventy eight thousand people were born in Canada. Um oh wow. Yeah. So so if they're gonna you know if they want to bring in four hundred thousand, that's definitely gonna help a lot of it. Uh or you use more, but I mean that's that's political call. But yeah, I those are those would be my two bets. Mm.
1: I like it. (laughs) Yeah. Um yeah. I think that that's probably a good call in that there's probably some people that were, you know, suppressed buyers even this year that we're going to see opening up into next year. And like you said about interest rates, I mean, you can't really push them up, So I'm pretty sure they're going to be around that 2%, you know, that 1.9 to 2.1% um, interest rate going forward for at least the foreseeable future. Um Presidential side, I mean, obviously, we hope that it's going to be another record year, but uh, it'll be interesting to see um, how these vaccines play out, how things go back to, if things actually go back to some sort of normalcy by, you know, summer of next year, um, what sort of influx we're going to see on that. Um, The commercial side of things, I mean, I'm just going to take a, a shot in the dark, but I think that the there's always potential, right? So there's, like we were saying, the creativity, there's going to be people that are buying these things and doing things that we've never even thought about. Um, And there's going to be some pretty cool stuff that comes up in the next couple of years here because of underutilized space. So, um, I mean, that's probably my uh, prediction. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I'm all for it.
2: There's a lot of people that are gonna get married next year because they put it off this year. That's mm-hmm. true.
1: That's true. You're going to have There's a, a lot more homes
2: there. Yeah, a lot of weddings going on next year. Homes, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah I mean, uh, I that's a really good point, Andrew, that makes me slightly rethink my thoughts on it. But I do think just because the overall economic picture, people consumer confidence will be in assuming things go moderately well at the bare minimum, if not very well. Uh, consumer confidence will be so high next year that, uh, yeah, I think it'll be almost again, almost a slightly artificially inflated thing where perhaps the baseline economy is like, you know, a slow, steady recovery, which is what they're trying to accomplish and project. Um, but because there's so much like, Oh sweet, we can go outside now. We can do this. It's a good time to buy blah, blah, blah. Like people may rush to the market. Right. Um, And I think one thing, yeah, I just, I would just say consumer attitudes will be the biggest thing uh, towards that. And then we'll probably see a really huge spike next year of uh, residential sales. And then after that, it might level out to like, I think if you look at like, you know, in 2025, we can look at the sales of like 2018 through whatever year. And like, if you, x out 2020 2021 the rest of it will be kind of a slow but steady increase that you would expect for canadian housing in a media market kind of thing right
1: my my question is just how much are people going to move back into the downtown cores is is my i don't forecasting i don't know i don't i wouldn't i wouldn't want to make a bet on that one.
0: Me neither. To well, even like said- it depends which market we're talking to, right? Cause if we're talking Edmonton, like Edmonton has always kind of been detached single family. We yep. see more of these purpose built rentals. I think those will continue to be popular, but um, I think we'll see more people lean, especially young people, millennials uh, leaning more towards uh, houses like detached houses, especially because I think this is just a thought I had now. Let's say the 25 to 35 demo is probably the highest percent where we're old enough that we're moved out, likely living in like a more central building of some sorts, just young enough to not necessarily be homeowners yet. And then I think this pandemic will probably largely change our perceptions of what we kind of value in our uh, home search criteria, right? Especially because we're such the convenience generation, which was pushing us towards more of the central walkable lifestyle. But perhaps this will actually be a great flip on our uh, generation's home housing preferences, right? Hmm. And that's for Edmonton, any kind of more medium-sized city, right? Your Vancouver, New York, Toronto, et cetera, I think people will go back in droves eventually. So,
1: Mm -hmm. Interesting talk, boys.
0: Yeah, it was good. I'll, we'll need to do one of these sooner. Have less of a gap between them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, once uh, a quarter. Time.
1: Once a quarter, maybe.
0: I think that's what we say, and we never quite do it. But uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll have to try to commit to that more often. So,
2: so, so um, in the words of uh, Tom Mazzetti, new videos every <laughs>
0: week.
1: <laughs> every when I feel like it. <laughs> yeah,
2: but I exactly. need to pay the rent. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, well, uh, Andrew, Brandon, we greatly appreciate you uh, joining us. I think this was a great conversation. Glad to have your guys' insight. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. We appreciate it. And uh, we'll touch base in a couple months. See, uh, see how things are looking, whose predictions were most accurate or not. <laughs> <laughs> that
2: sounds, sounds good to so nice. me on. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks, guys. Yep. Take care, guys. See